Welcome, everyone. It is Suiting Up Podcast time. I'm your host, Paul Rabel, pro lacrosse player in New York and with Team USA. I'm an entrepreneur and investor. This is a show where I delve into the stories of some of today's leading athletes, entrepreneurs, and entertainers, interviewing them and unpacking the psychology of their success while trying to hack into their playbook of tools. Worth kicking off, though, before today's episode, a quick shout out to our first ever guest of Suiting Up Pod, Coach Bill Belichick. On their come-from-behind win against the Jags, which feels all too familiar, these Patriots. Back-to-back Super Bowl, on that quest, good luck, coach. Now, for many of you that tuned into the last couple weeks of Suiting Up, we decided to create a three-part series reflecting on main core sharings from some of our 32 year one guests, which included Coach Belichick and others, distilling them into three topics. Week one was high performance, week two was leadership, and today, week three, success and failure. If you missed parts one and two, you can download and listen to them on soonupodcast.com or iOS and Android using Apple Pod, Google Play, TuneIn, you know the deal. Now, let's jump right in. Winston Churchill, a person arguably most responsible for winning World War II and the fight against Nazism, he was the UK Prime Minister, Army officer, and a glorified, mesmerizing writer. I'm only now beginning to familiarize myself more and more with his work. And one of my favorite quotes of his goes as follows. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And I think he's referencing the journey, the ups and the downs, success and failure. I've been fortunate to succeed, especially in sports, in my life, and now realize I've been even more fortunate now to fail. Because it's through failure where we acknowledge the true need to change, to earn perspective. Note, not learn through deep failure. We quite literally earn our newfound perspective. The growth and change that enables you to work harder, possibly, or in most cases, smarter, to care more about people, but in most cases, again, understand people. Favorite author of mine is Adam Grant. He calls this post-traumatic growth. And on part three of this three-part series, recapping some of my favorite guests and moments of my first year in podcasting, we're going to be equally highlighting how these talented, high-performing guests have not only dealt with failures, but success. The big takeaway for me is they know how valuable each has been and are vulnerable enough to talk about it. So right now, I'm going to take us back and forth between these guests, and we're going to start with Jay Williams, who I believe was one of the best basketball players to ever come out of Duke University in the last several decades, I would say. He lost his NBA career to a motorcycle accident and shared more about that with us. Let's listen to Jay. Jay Williams died that day. And what I mean by that is people still call me Jay. The people who don't know me call me Jay. The people who actually really, really know me personally call me Jason. When, you know, I'm, I'm dying to do a TED Talk. And, you know, when you do a TED talk, you only get 13 minutes, right? I love Kanye, my my best friend, um, a guy I've known for a long time, and Scooter Braun reps Kanye, and we've been trying to talk about the right way to do this. And, you know, I, I have this whole image in my mind about, you know, as I first stand on the stage, the, the song Flashing Lights comes on. Hmm. And, like, one of the most surreal moments for me, Paul, Turning into this entity that I was about to turn into was being a a 19, 20-year-old kid hearing his name being called by David Stern and 
recognizing in that moment, holy shit, this is all really fucking happening. I just got drafted second. Like all this hard work, all the people that told me that, you know, when I was a sophomore, you should commit to Fordham and, you know, we don't know if you're quick enough or if you're fast enough. Or, hey, after your freshman year in college, like, you're not the point guard we expected. And you're two-time national player of the year. You won, you won a championship. You graduated school three years. Holy shit. We're fucking here. Like, thinking about that as I'm hugging my mom and my dad and having this moment of joy. And then as I'm walking up the stairs and I see David Stern and the flood of flashing lights coming on me. I remember looking at my mom and my dad and scary, scary moment for me to recognize, shit, that's, that's the CEO and the CMO of my company now. Hmm. Shit, I have a company? I haven't even done anything yet to warrant being a second pick in the league. My girlfriend, she's there. God, I love her, but what am I about to get into? Do I want a girlfriend right now? Like, I have an accountant and a financial advisor and an agent at my table. Who the fuck are these guys? Where did they come from? Like now they're they're at my table on draft night? Like they're part of my family now? Like this is this whole thing is changing. Um this whole family atmosphere and environment I came from is now just it's business now. And that was it was difficult for me to process at that particular moment. And um, then you start adding in the the dynamics of what teammates were to me, meeting your new teammates, recognizing that Jalen Rose didn't fucking like me because I was, I was a dookie. Um, to Jamal Crawford, who was talented as hell, who just got drafted top five, you know, a couple years prior. To, he was the guy before that. Where is he in his career and what he wants to achieve? Am I a perceived threat? Hmm. You're damn right I am. When his contract is up and what he's trying to go for. Oh, Jalen and Jamal are Michigan boys. They're they're close tight together. Oh, we just drafted Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry, you know, two high school kids where we played a triangle. The ball's not even gonna be in my hands. Oh, we're we're gambling fifteen thousand dollars on a plane ride? Oh, I just saw a teammate lose a Mercedes S500 off the roll of a dice. Oh, we're, we're going to strip clubs until 4 o'clock in the morning and the game's at 2 o'clock the next afternoon. Whoa, what the fuck? Damn. Like, this is all... Like, for, so for anybody that you know, tries to judge a lot of these kids, it's hard to understand how the dynamics of their life have changed and you're just supposed to adjust. You're just supposed to figure it all out. Nobody sat down with me and gave me financial courses. Nobody sat down and told me about how the hell was I supposed to pick an agent? I'm thinking about picking somebody who I feel close to, you know, instead of somebody that I'm making the right business decision off of. You know, how can I decipher between the two? So I, I, I think all of that, and not to try to expedite the storytelling process of what that first year and the only year was for me, but, you know... It, I would have a hard time putting my hands around that now as a 36-year-old man, yet mm-hmm. alone a 20-year-old kid. It's challenging. It is the most challenging thing in the psychology element of 
the expectation of the fans to say, well, I'd love to be there and receive million plus well, because, dollars cause, and just go play. Because as a fan, we think you make a certain amount of money. It takes all your woes away. Let me tell you, it, it, Biggie, I mean, more money, more problems. It exponentially enhances the pre-existing issues that were already there. And, and, and it then, makes them worse. And then the double-edged sword of like, well, if I was worth that much and if I was that talented and my talent relied on my body, then I would just lock myself in my house all day and then just show up to the arena and like eat well and hire a chef and like just live this life where the double-edged sword is like, then these folks never progress personally or never mature. But wait, you're telling them not to go out and, and explore and experience your 20s. Right, and, and so it's just this huge juxtaposition that this gets these into, young athletes sit in. Agreed, and this gets into the bigger issue too. Like you know, it, it's hard for a lot of athletes to recognize what reality is because everything is adjusted for them. Mm -hmm. So for my entire first year, I barely had anybody say no to me. It was all about what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, with who I wanted to do it with. Going back to that feedback part exactly. that we were just talking and about. Exactly, and I found a way mentally to justify all my own behavior, all right? So, oh, I want to cheat on my girl? I'm not married yet. Yeah. Oh, shit, it's my first year in the league. It's okay. It's just, is it really okay? Is that a problem? Oh, you know, um, I just lost 10 grand on a roll of dice. Well, you know, it's per diem. Mm. It's okay, you yeah. know. Everyone else is doing Everybody it. Everybody else is doing it. It's okay. Is it really okay? You know, it's um, it's weird how, first off, you don't even think about who you are or what you stand for at that age. And all of a sudden, you get lost in this whirlwind of a life. And those habits that you pick up while you're going through that tornado start to become part of the DNA of who you actually are. And you're not even recognizing it's going on. Yep. And if that happens for a decade... <sighs> then you're, you're really at uh, a difficult place when you retire or get cut or stop playing from, for professional sports that now all of a sudden you enter the common workplace and you're not put on a pedestal anymore. You're immediately kicked off of it. And you have to figure out what your next working wage is and likely starting from an analyst position, whatever it is, or assistant coach for a high school team. And this is just not professional sport. I mean, this is life. I've seen this happen to people who worked on Wall Street. I've seen this happen mm -hmm. to people... You know, and I, I think that's what I equate my accident to the most is that everybody has an accident in some form or fashion. You know, hopefully yours is a lot smaller than mine. It's not as significant, but for you, it may be the most significant thing you go through in your life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if my lawyer friend who his childhood sweetheart left him, you know, once he became partner at the law firm and left him for a hedge fund manager. That was his accident. For a friend that loses a child, that's her accident. Mm -hmm. Your accident may be losing your job. Um, there's no way I am who I am today if I did not get hurt. I don't know what path I would have continued to go down if everybody continued to cater to my every single need. And I had made $200 million and I have received all the fame in the world and the recognition. I don't know if I would have been able to have the maturity to figure myself out or take the time to figure me out. Think like a queen. A queen is not afraid to fail. Failure is another stepping stone to greatness. That one's from Oprah Winfrey. And our next guest that I'm going to reference was an early days sitting at podcast interviewee. He's also a close friend. 
He's a multiple-time Olympian and world champion fencer. Miles Chamley Watson, I'll say, works really, really, really hard. He's constantly training, fueling his body, he's traveling the world, and always focused on his recovery. These are really, really important tactics for pro athletes and Olympians. Although he's got a great tactic that I'm going to cut to when it comes to mindfulness preparation and this ultimate journey, especially when it comes to training, where Miles eliminates the word can't and the phrase what if from his diet. That's what's different about me is I've always been someone who never gave excuses. If I lost, I lost. It's not like, well, the referee, no, I lost. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's one thing that I've always been. My mom can tell you that too. She would make more excuses for me than I would because what's the point of making an excuse? It doesn't matter. You know, loss is a loss. I wouldn't say I fear losing because you can't fear. If you prepare, you can't prepare to, to fail. Like people are like, mm-hmm. oh, if I train, like what if? Like I, I always change my what ifs into what's next. And I take the word can't out of my vocabulary. So I don't fear anything really. So I think... I want to win more than anyone else. Yeah. I love that, man. Taking the word can't out of your vocabulary. And whenever I speak to little kids, I say the first thing is take can't out of your vocabulary. Take it out. because And the what ifs suck. Right? Because what if? Well, you hear that all the time, right? Yeah. What if if someone's training right now while you're sleeping? Or there's probably someone that's coming up that's working harder than you. And that's a what if. And then then you're training out of fear. Exactly. And it's like you have this... Times where I'll see the like the, the tableau and I'll be like, and for us, if you're number one in the world, you, you can get flipped. So you'd be number two in the world for the competition. And I'm like, oh, like what if I got flipped? I'm like, well, you didn't get flipped. So why are you thinking about what if? The best athletes have the shortest memory. Yep. Where you say you win, great. You lose, great. Yep. You know how hard that is to, to, to lose and say, F it? Yeah. So for me, that's something like I want to kind of model my crew off a little bit where like when I'm done then you can soak it all in like wow but when you're in the moment you win okay great forget about it if you lose forget about it because it's so hard to lose and be like yeah you know what it's fine but if you can take that stress off of your head and say yeah you know what it's done find something positive out of you losing then you've won my friend today's episode is brought to you by Mattress Firm where everyone knows how important stretching is before an event Mattress Firm also adds to your stretch, except it's through your dollar bill. Your budget stretch literally further when you're shopping at America's Neighborhood Mattress Store. It's a true home run, as they call it, and you'll have a ball. Or in lacrosse nomenclature, a natural hat trick, maybe, would be the correlation. Definitely an OT game winner, I think. Mattress Firm is the head coach when it comes to mattress expertise, but know this, they are more than just mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a full bed and bedroom from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you literally and figuratively covered up like your favorite cornerback or the best short stick D mini on the team. Go to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to see what deals are happening as you listen to the sentence I'm speaking. They'll offer you 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Talk about a one-two punch, a knockout, if you will. Or again, a cross-check that's legal that led to a turnover heading down the other way for that OT game winner I just talked about. Score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow.
Go for it. I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways it won't work. That quote comes from Thomas Edison, who, like Miles Chamley Watson, thinks about the framing of loss, defeat, or failure in a unique light. Personally, I found framing to resonate really well in sports, and we'll use golf as an example. Off the tee box, a PGA world-class player is likely guaranteed to miss a fairway every round, and in most cases, they miss the fairway a lot. And I feel like in other sports, if your first shot is off or you miss, and me personally miss my first shot on net, I tend to doubt myself, lose confidence, or begrudgingly make my next move. And oftentimes, especially when I was younger, before I learned about framing, I would end up having a bad game, but not in golf. In fact, the framing of golfers is such that if they miss the fairway, they're given an opportunity to go what they call up and down. Think about that. Where we drop our heads in other sports, golfers think to themselves, here we go. I'm Phil Mickelson. I've made millions of dollars and won PGA championships by hitting impossible shots. In fact, they're romanticized and celebrated so much that everyone just forgot about the bad lead-in to this impossible shot, and they want to see a positive response. This was gold for me, and frankly should be for any athlete. Looking at the obstacle or the bad play as the way, as Ryan Holiday suggests, who was on this show about a month ago. Let's frame our poor play, our poor shot, poor performance into our version of an up and down. And up next, my dear friend, MC10, Inc. co-sports advisor, former NFL quarterback, now NFL guru, Matt Hasselback, talked to us about emotional intelligence and specifically finding success through turbulence. Take it away, Matt. I think age is overrated, and, and that's something that you find on any football team. So in our locker room, there's 53 guys on the on the active roster. Then you've got um, up to like 10 practice squad players. Then you've got guys that are on injured reserve that can't. You know they've had surgery in season, so they're a part of your team. They're in the building, but they don't they don't get to dress. They don't get to go to right. practice. They don't get to do any of that stuff. But you find that whether whether you're a you know, you grew up a, a rich kid in Greenwich, Connecticut, or a poor kid in Miami, Florida. Like, that doesn't matter about what kind of teammate you are, or what mm. kind of friend you are, or what kind of leader you can be on our team. And even the age thing. I mean, I, I've I've had teammates that were close to my age that, you know, it was just an okay relationship. And I've had guys where I was the 41-year-old and they were the rookie and We'll be lifelong friends, and we're like you and Andrew Luck. You know, Andrew Luck—that's a good example. Like he's closer in age to my kids than he is to me, mm-hmm. and you know, we were quarterbacks together with the Indianapolis Colts, and um, we've got a great relationship, yeah. a great relationship, and we always will, I, I would imagine, uh, unless I say something bad about him on ESPN and he gets mad at me, which is <laughs> that could happen too. But, um, but, but you know, he would come over to the house. You know, my wife would be making dinner or whatever, and. He'd say, oh, thanks, Mrs. Hasselbeck. And she'd give him this look like, don't you ever call me Mrs. Right. Hasselbeck again. That's <laughs> awful, okay? Yeah. And then, like, before you know it, we're having dinner. And then he's, like, helping the kids with their homework. Yeah. I'm like, uh, so the adults are over here, you right. know? I mean, I think they can handle it. Yeah. It's just uh, long yeah. division. Yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, I mean, that happens in, like, the age thing. That doesn't happen often, though, where you have a 41-year-old quarterback. No, but, you know, NFL. like, I even remember, like, when Warren Moon was quarterbacking for the Kansas City Chiefs, they drafted Tony Gonzalez in the first round, yeah. and those guys were immediate roommates. So he was 41, yeah. and Tony Gonzalez was a rookie tight end. They were immediate roommates and yeah. lifelong friends. Um, even with coaches, like, I've had some coaches – that have been way, way older than me. Like their kids are my age and they're like 
some of my best friends. And so yeah. like that, like you said, emotional intelligence. Well, I think, I, I think you're discounting your, your, your character value and your character traits. For sure. For sure. That's right? part of it. So that's why, that's why I, I want to kind of get into is like, you mentioned, you, you're thinking of like two or three people that you can think of. I couldn't think of more than two or three people that have had a meaningful impact for as long as you have. It's not just about, Hey, uh, I'm a good person. I'm a good leader and I'm going to relate to everyone. Like there, there's real investment that you're probably making. It comes naturally because that's why you've been successful at it for so long. I think but. that in football, in our locker rooms, if you have an unselfish attitude, that's attractive. If you're really, really, really good at your job, that's attractive. And if you're a hard worker, um, that's attractive. Yeah. And so those three things, like if you're good at all those things, you're unselfish, hard worker, and really good at your job, people are going to want to get to know you more, do what you do, hear from you. Um, when there's a lull in a team setting, they want you to speak up. They yeah. want to hear from you. Um, so if you're, do you think that there's logic to being unselfish and hardworking that that will make you a better player than not? It's hard because I've been around some guys that... Uh, Hardworking and selfish. Well, let me think of it the other way. I have know some guys that are great players. Yeah. Like you're, they're on your fantasy team, but they were selfish and they weren't hard workers yeah. and their teammates don't respect them. That's don't right. like them, don't really want to be their teammate. They're not even happy for them. Like a guy scores a touchdown, like they don't even clap. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, we scored. Oh, well. You know, but like yeah. that, there's that. Yeah. Then, then on the flip side, there's guys that are unselfish, hardworking, but they can't get it done. Yeah. And if you can't get it done, like, hey, man, I love you, but, you know, my career is only a certain amount of time and I'm in it to win and, like, yeah. we can be friends. But, eh. yeah. you know, so if you get all three of those, I think that's pretty, pretty strong, pretty yeah. powerful. It's always been ups and downs. I mean, even I, coming out of college, I wasn't invited to the combine. I wasn't uh, had a pro day. Only one coach showed up: the Green Bay Packers quarterback coach Andy Reid, and he showed up at Boston College. And it was snowing that day, so he's like, oh, "I guess we can't work out. It's snowing." And I'm like, "Oh no, we can still work out." And he was like, "Oh, that was a test, and you passed, so we're good. <laughs> like you could play in Green Bay." I was like, "But we never threw, never even awesome. threw." So I was shocked to get drafted. I was yeah. shocked to get drafted. I was in grad school, and and um, the draft happened in April and I got drafted and I'm like, these guys in the Packers, they're morons. Why would they draft me? I'm, I'm not good enough. You know, like how they, how are they coming yeah. off of their second consecutive yeah. Super Bowl? Like yeah. how are they successful with Brett Favre? Like they can't evaluate quarterbacks. They picked me, yeah. you know, granted it was pick 187. It was, you know, Peyton well, Manning, good film, Peyton Manning, Ryan Leaf, one, two, and then me at 187. So I even thought that was a wasted pick. So I get there and I'm like, well, hey, maybe I'll get to bring home the Packers shorts when this uh, camp's over that they give you. You know, maybe I'll have to steal them if they don't. And uh, but I'll show my grandkids. It'll be what a great story. I played right. for the Packers one time. You know, for a weekend at a yeah. mini camp. And uh, and I got there and I'm like, you know what? I, I might be able to do this. I might be able to make the team. Yeah. So I basically stopped grad school and went for it. Just did everything to make the Green Bay Packers. I still got cut. I still got cut. You know, Rick Meyer got cut from the Bears, and they were like, hey, you, they said, yeah, the day before, they're like, yeah, you made the team. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. This is a dream come true. <laughs> yeah. And the next day, they're like, hey, Rick Meyer got cut from the Bears. I'm like, well, that stinks for him. Yeah. I'm like, well, we feel like it's an upgrade if we oh sign him God. over you. So, so I'm gone. So I play 17 games on the practice squad in Green Bay playing scout team tight end because there was no reason to have an extra quarterback, but they kind of needed a body to do yep. tight end in practice. So I'm blocking There's Reggie. That unselfishness. Well, it was just like uh, starving for a job basically you know <laughs> and so i'm blocking reggie white every day you know my first year oh my in 
playing scout team tight end. I hadn't played tight end since I was 12. And uh, Your dad played tight end. My dad played tight end. So, so at least I at least knew how to get into a three-point stance and I knew what a swim move was. But aside, <laughs> And I knew how to hold. I saw him do that. So, but, so then the next year, I'm the backup quarterback for the Packers. Yeah. And so I was at a low, and then a high, then a low. And then, so anyway, three years in Green Bay. Then I go to Seattle. I'm traded there to be their starter. Well, it wasn't like, you know, all roses right away. I get there and I get benched immediately. They make my backup, Trent Dilfer, the starter. He had just won the Super Bowl in Baltimore. Baltimore, I got booed out of town, like literally. Yeah. Uh, Mike Holmgren said to me, hey, listen, I'm not usually wrong, but uh, about quarterbacks, I, I guess I was wrong. It's hard to admit, but yeah. I thought you could play. You can't. Hmm. And then, you know, unfortunately for Trent Dilfer, he tears his Achilles the next year hmm. uh, in the game where Emmett Smith breaks the rushing title. Yeah. And, and I got to come in and, you know, basically help us win the game. And I never give the job back up. So, yeah. I mean, it was ups and downs and, yeah. and Seattle for a long time, it just wasn't going to work. And so I ended up being there for 10 years, uh, mostly great years. 08, I got hurt. wasn't a great year. 09, it was a tough year. But um, 2010 was a great year. We kind of ended on a high note at home against the world championship uh, you know, defending champs, the New Orleans Saints. You know, everyone kind of knows it as the beast mode run game, you yeah. know, where Marshawn Lynch had that amazing run. But then... We, you know, we, we don't play well enough the following week in the playoffs and uh, we're out. And so that season, the lockout's coming. Pete Carroll's the first year head coach. I'm thinking, hey, this thing's back. We've turned this ship around here. We worked hard to get it back to this point, And now we're on our way. And like you said, I, I didn't come back. You know, they, they basically moved on from me after the lockout. But looking back, there were so many good things like to yeah. think like I almost wasn't even invited to the, to this party basically. Yeah. And now I got to experience it. The journey was amazing. There is no innovation in creativity without failure, period. That one comes from Brene Brown. And our final guest is a coaching mentor of mine, but he's a very close friend and only person in lacrosse history to have won a national championship as a player and a coach, as well as been named the national player of the year and National Coach of the Year in the NCAA. That is very rare, everyone. Never accomplished in lacrosse. I don't know. I guess I could have Andrew check the records if that's been done in any other sport. But think about all the wonderful Hall of Fame players who have attempted to transition their career into coaching. On very rare occasions, these former world-class athletes have been successful. If ever, have they been the best at both, like Coach Petro? It takes, as Brene Brown would put, innovation and creativity, but in Coach's case, a lot of vulnerability, failures, personal rediscovery, and this type of commitment that goes far beyond what I often frame as the need for endurance. I'm not sure there's a word that encompasses Coach Petro's dedication, his work ethic, this passion and relentless effort that he has. And with all that, winning still doesn't come regularly, yet his motives remain the same. He builds great character into the young men he recruits seeing that they graduate at the top of their class every year while instilling in them the discipline required to perform at the highest level in Division I lacrosse. This episode with Coach Petro was our second most downloaded in all of 2017. Perhaps because of who Coach Petro is, I'm still searching for that word. It's indefinable. But he's a wonderful storyteller. He's super charismatic and has that deep, rustic, almost meditative voice that captures your attention. Here's Coach Dave Petromala on winning a championship at Johns Hopkins, describing the moment, what it takes, and what he's taken from it. You know, in 03, we had a great team. 
Yeah. Bobby Benson, Adam Doniger. We had two of the great leaders that I've had as captains. I mean, talk about two guys that knew the game, that were committed to Hopkins, committed to their teammates. I mean, I'd come up here to the office on, on Monday mornings, and not long after I get in, there's Bob Benson and Adam Doniger in the locker room watching film. I'm not sure how they worked their academic schedule around that, <laughs> but those guys were committed. They were driven. And they were driven. I'll never forget, Peter Lesore paid Adam Donner a great compliment. He, he, we were talking, and, and he said, Coach, I know what I need to do. I'm just going to follow Adam Doniger around, and I'm going to do everything that Adam Doniger does. What a great compliment to, to, to a guy like Adam. But we go into 03, and we play great against Syracuse. I mean, we run away with the game in the semifinal, which turns out the year later, they did the same thing to us. They repaid us for the year mm -hmm. prior. But we go into the championship game, and we are playing great. Mm -hmm. And we run into Virginia and Tillman Johnson. Yep. You know, and everybody wants to talk about Tillman Johnson and the great game he had. He was the reason. I watched that film not long ago. And you want to talk about a group of seniors that were committed. Chris Rattelli, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was A.J. Shannon. A.J. Shannon, Canadian. Yep. One of the first Guys Canadians like that. to really break into uh, the field. Billy Gladding. Mm -hmm. It was Billy Gladding. That's right. And, I mean, there are guys diving in front of shots and things I hadn't seen a Virginia team ever do. Yeah. And they were so committed. And not that our guys weren't, but – goes back to what you that, said about competition. It, it was that, Someone's going to lose. That difference. That was the difference. It wasn't just Tillman Johnson. Who saved everything. Everything. It was insane. And he was, was he, he was great against us. He might have been better against Maryland the, the two days earlier. Yeah. So then we don't win that game, and we feel like we got a great team and, 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 and have every right to believe we're good enough to win it, and we don't. Then we turn around the next year, and we get back to the same place, and boy, did we lay an egg. And Syracuse throttles us like we did the year before to them. Yeah. So now we're thinking, what is it that we have to do? And you know what? I'll never forget receiving an email from Kyle Harrison that he had sent to his teammates. And he was kind enough to include me. And basically it said, hey, fellas, it's been three weeks since, you know, we lost in the semifinals. I'm at the beach. I can't taste my food. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see anybody. I just want to get back to Hopkins and get back to work. And, you know, the gist of it was of that nature. And he said, I am going to work so hard, and I am going to work on my left hand, and I am going to do everything I can to be the best player that I can be, but I expect you to be doing the same. We had great leadership that year. We had a team that policed itself. We had a team that was so hungry and had such a chip on its shoulder. It was pretty talented, too. Yeah. Yet you think about it, the margin forever is slow, slight. We, we won like five one-goal games that mm -hmm. year. We won it because we believed we were going to win it no matter what because of the effort and the preparation that we put in. We believed we were going to win it because our leaders believed – we were going to win it. We had the best player in the country in Kyle Harrison who told told the team we were going to win it. You know, so, you know, it's interesting. You look back and 
we were blowing teams out in 03. Yeah. And yet our margin of victory in 05 was one goal in like four or five games. Right. <laughs> and yet that's the year we won it. Yeah, a bunch of overtime wins. Yeah. And- so you, you, you just never know. And, and you know, the, the, the lesson is, is, is simple. You just keep your nose to the grindstone. You keep believing in your culture. You keep believing in what your coaches are doing. Uh, sometimes when you when you have so much success, but you don't have the ultimate ultimate success, it's easy to start to wonder why, what's wrong, we're not good enough, we're not going to do it, and we we had an extraordinarily special group that year, and you know that showed in how we handled the semifinal game against Virginia. Which was wild. I, I remember ah, even even hearing this. I, I because I wasn't on the team that lost to Syracuse in the semis. I was a f- part of the freshman class coming in that year, so we didn't get Kyle's email presumably in June. But I look at his collection of work, and it was always the first goal of the game and the last goal of the game, and and kind of held us all by our hands throughout. And we contributed. And then when we needed him with ten seconds left against Navy, he scored. Yep. And when we needed him out of the timeout in this Virginia game, he scored. Uh, first goal of the game, first game of the season in Princeton at their 1950 whatever it is stadium. Left-handed. He scores. Yep. yep. Uh, and, and it was always just a sigh of relief. And so when you're a freshman again, you're like, well, this, is, this whole thing's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> like, you, you, you have such yeah, great leadership. But you say you it's easy, it. but you know what? Think about what you were learning. Yep. You know, culture is passed down. And you know, think about what you guys did. That class graduated, and you you went to two more yeah. Final Fours, and you won your you, you know you won another championship, yeah. and we were in the championship game your senior year. Which, by the way, six goals was an unbelievable effort. But you look at what you took from that senior class, and they passed down to you a culture that you continued to pass down. Thank you, Coach Petro, and that wraps it. Our three-part series reflecting on the first full year of Suiting Up Podcasts and all of our wonderful guests who gave us so much of their insider information and knowledge as to what makes them successful. I want to thank each of them again, and starting next week, we start year two with amazing athletes, entertainers, and entrepreneurs. I want you to continue the conversation with us on social media. My Twitter handle is at Paul Rabel. We've got a strong running list, as I said, of these interviewees. We'll pick right up right here next Monday. Tweet at me with any of your athlete, entertainer, author, or entrepreneur suggestions. You've been emailing me as well. I love hearing them, and we're trying to get them booked. Be the first to listen to next week's episode, as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with each of the highlighted guests from today. All of these episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, please consider letting us a subscribe. It means a lot, and thank you. There's a shortcut to our show notes. Visit studentuppodcast.com, and shout out to today's show sponsor, Mattress Firm. Go to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to access the show's deal. I'm looking forward to next week's episode. It's going to be really exciting. Big, 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 big time news released first time exclusively on this podcast, which is the first of its kind. I'll share more on social, but... We'll talk to you next Monday.